This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. We've got you now for an hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And Dr. Linden. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Happy Clean Up Australia Day to you. <laughs> Okay, I was just about to bag you out for the heat. Oh, but, uh, haha, cut you off at the pass. Yeah. You know, I feel like my to-do list just got longer today. It, uh, it, uh, it may have, I'm not so sure. Now, today on the show, folks, we're mixing things up a bit because our first guest is on the phone from the UK. So uh, we're going to jump right into that and then we'll come back to some news at the end of the show. But hopefully on the line with us now is Dr. Roger Close, who's an early, is an ERC research fellow in the University of Birmingham and visiting fellow at Oxford University. Roger, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Thanks. Fantastic. Now, how are you doing? You, you, good, good. You're 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 actually a listener of our show, which uh, is always surprising to hear. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Melbourne, and I started listening to the show probably in the late nineties. So it was, it was definitely one of the things that got me into science when I was a teenager. Oh, that's. Uh-huh. that's I, I thought it was just my mum listening. That's great to hear. Um, now, <laughs> yeah, and you've ended up becoming a paleobiologist. Tell us, what's a paleobiologist? So I study the history of life using the fossil record, mm-hmm. um, and I've I've explored a number of different avenues in my career as a paleobiologist. But what I focus on at the moment is trying to understand the history of biodiversity over the last several tens to hundreds of, hundreds of millions of years, uh, using essentially sort of statistical analyses of the fossil record. Hmm. And, and, I mean, the biodiversity thing is something that I guess has been pretty controversial over the years. The, the current level of biodiversity, how does that compare to what it's been, you know, just a few million years ago, 100 million years, etc.? Yeah, so that's kind of a core research question that I'm interested in. Um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in understanding how the spectacular diversity that we see today came to exist over geological time. And actually, surprisingly, that's quite a controversial uh, topic. Uh, And it basically comes down to how you read the fossil record. Mm. So the fossil record is the only direct evidence that we have uh, for levels of diversity in the distant past. People use other sources of data like molecular phylogeny. So this is trees of life constructed from DNA and things like that. But the fossil record is really the only direct evidence we have for um, how many species there were at particular times and places in the distant past. Um, And um, until relatively recently, the prevailing opinion has been that diversity has been increasing um, substantially over the last several tens of millions of years, um, particularly on land. So the, the kind of dominant paradigm is this idea that uh, terrestrial diversity um, has been, particularly amongst animals, has been increasing more or less exponentially through the Phanerozoic. So that's the last um, 500 million years, mm. um, although terrestrial life has only really existed for the last three or 400 million years. Mm. Um, and under this sort of paradigm, um, you, 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 it's thought that there were maybe tenfold increases over the last 100 million years. Um, but the work that I'm doing... Um, is is kind of changing that picture and suggesting that increases were happened early on and um, 
there've been there's been relatively static levels of diversity for tens of millions of years at the very least. Now, now, Roger, I remember reading a book a few years ago, I think it was called The Cambrian Explosion, and it had this idea that part of that explosion of diversity was due to the evolution of the eye or the evolution of sight in a variety of species. Is that still one of the prevailing thoughts, or are there other, what are the other theories for why this um, massive explosion in diversity currently occurred? Uh, that is definitely one of the um, one of the hypotheses that's currently and uh, a lie of hypothesis about um, diversification during the Cambrian, I think, into the Ordovician as well, because that facilitated um, the evolution of predators and more complex ecosystems. Um, the, the actual Cambrian explosion itself could potentially be related to um, skeletonization of previously soft-bodied lineages of animals. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you've hit upon an interesting point here, because... Um, the two different kind of uh, end members of the debate about how diversity has changed over the last several hundred million years. Uh, on the one hand, you have people um, arguing for extreme increases, pretty much ex- exponential increases um, over geological time, versus people who argue that increases are much more rapid early on and then uh, strongly constrained for uh, these sort of geological timescales. Um, these types of innovations like um, eyesight or uh, powered flight in birds or um, uh, angiosperm flowers, for instance, in, in the plant kingdom, um, these are what paleontologists call key innovations. And even under the idea that, uh, even if we accept the idea that diversity doesn't increase exponentially, that it's constrained by uh, processes that regulate diversification, um, you would still expect to see changes in um, these sort of equilibrium levels of diversity in response to these evolutionary innovations. Mm. And that's certainly what happened in, in, that, in the case of the evolution of, of eyes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Roger, it's Dr Linden here. Thanks for staying up so late to have a chat to us. Um, I just have a question thinking no about... I know people who study the uh, paleontology, sort of the cradle of life, and all there's a lot of work being done in Africa in that space. Where are the hot spots for people to examine the paleo uh, biology of of um, biodiversity? Where are you? Where are your hot spots? Where do you go to do this research? Yeah. So the the thing about doing this type of research is that um, it's not about so much. As, as, as a, speaking as a researcher doing this type of synthetic research, it's not about me personally going out and finding fossils, although that is really cool and lots of fun. Um, it's, it's about um, taking advantage of vast amounts of data that have been um, accrued over decades, if not centuries, um, and assembled into these large online databases. Ah, that, so um, museums and online. Cool That's research. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So th- there are definitely hotspots of diversity in the sense that certain parts of the, the fossil record are really well sampled and they have spectacular sort of windows into ancient biodiversity. Um, but I'm able to use this this massive kind of uh, accumulation of data to, to make these inferences about, about changes in diversity in the past. Uh, Roger, this is Dr. Ray. I, I had a question about your the, the, the large data, and, and is there any correlation between the diversity in fauna or flora, or is one timed before the other? Do you see an explosion in a variety of plants prior to the explosion in a variety of uh, animals, or is it not really correlated? I think that's a really good question. And the answer is that 
um, in many cases, well, it depends where in geological time or when in geological time you're talking about. So there's definitely, I think, a, a good case for coevolution of diversity in um, plants and animals in the Carboniferous, which is when uh, terrestrial vertebrates first took off um, in around 300 million years ago or so. Um, because the development of, of um, lush uh, forests facilitate, uh, enabled the, the, the rise of amniotes lineages that fed on um, the plants. So this is the first time that you get herbivores, uh, tetrapod herbivores in the record, uh, uh, things that feed on insects. So there's definitely a strong case for kind of parallel changes in diversity then. People have also argued for um, a big response in animal diversity um, in response to the evolution of angiosperms, so that's flowering plants in the mid-Cretaceous. Uh, but I think the evidence for that is much less um, much less well-founded because um, of various different sampling biases in the fossil record. So it seems like a, a sensible idea. But um, based on the work that that me and my and my fellow researchers have been doing, there doesn't seem to be a substantial response in geological time um, to the appearance of, of flowering plants, uh, at least in, in tetrapods, so that's uh, terrestrial vertebrates like mammals and lizards and things like that. Okay, well, that's, that's really interesting. And, and when you said data, and you, you're, you've already started to, to, to pull at the, the next question I had. If I remember... Um, the discovery of dinosaurs. I remember there's the term the bone wars in the what late 1800s, early 1900s, where people were just digging things up. The same species of dinosaur has different names. So it, it would sound like that the data record you're looking at, while it must be immense, probably has some variability in sampling, reliability. You mentioned the word bias. How do you deal with that on a large scale data set like the one you, the ones you work with? Yeah, so I think that's really the key question about interpreting the fossil record in order to understand how biodiversity has changed in, through deep time. And the, the biases come in all sorts of different kinds of flavours. So I think um, on the one hand, you've got uh, simple sampling intensity biases. So if you have, if you go out and try and measure the diversity of any type of system, be it um, species, or if you're, you might even be interested in, in measuring the diversity of uh, coins in circulation. If you if you sample more of these things, if you if you find more individual them as whatever species they are, or if you go out and collect a whole bunch of coins and classify them into different types of uh, makes or issues, or whatever you call them, then if you find more if you find more uh, if you have a larger sample size, essentially, then you're going to find more kinds of things, species, types of coins, whatever. And so uh, paleontologists have developed um, methods to standardise sampling in, in fair ways so that um, you can essentially draw down uh, the, the really better sampled interv uh, intervals of time or geographic regions or whatever to the same level as the ones that are less well sampled so that you can compare, the, compare them on an equal footing. But, um, and that's that's kind of been the the, the main way of looking at sampling bias in the fossil record for a decade or two, at least. Uh, but the work that my colleagues and I have been doing recently 
suggests that it's not this kind of direct uh, sampling intensity bias that's the real issue. It's the fact that uh, the, the rock record itself, and by extension the fossils that you find in the rocks, actually um, increases expo- more or less exponentially uh, through the Phanerozoic, so it's the last several hundred million years, um, su- such that the extent of the fossil record, um, the kind of geographic coverage of the fossil record increases more or less exponentially towards the present. And that means that um, if you're trying to estimate diversity uh, from a very recent geological time interval in the last few million years, um, you're, you're basing your estimate of, of species diversity on a very large area of the globe, which means that um, you're, you're, you're sampling a much larger taxon pool. And if you go further back in time, your spatial sampling in the fossil record is much more restricted, which means that you can only ever sample a much smaller proportion of the taxa that were alive on the planet at the time. So there's this fundamental spatial bias, particularly in the terrestrial record, not so much in in the record of marine animals. And that's the thing that we're really trying to correct for. There's nothing we can do about that, really. I mean, I guess you can correct for it if you know what that difference is, but that's about it. Roger, before I let you go, I just want you to answer one question for me. I've, for some reason, never ever looked this up, but Fossils are actually rocks by the time you look at them, aren't they? I mean, the the original material's been replaced by rock, is that right? Or is there anything the original uh, material left? Well, they're def- that, that is true some of the time, but um, certainly in a lot of cases, the original bone material is still preserved, and right. that's... that's true for the, the, there's an early Cretaceous fossil site that's been very productive in Victoria, down near Inverloch. Do you, mm-hmm. Have you heard of dinosaur yeah. dreaming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so those fossils um, act, actually preserve the original hydroxyapatite in the bone. And at various other sites, people, uh, paleontologists have been able to extract all sorts of interesting kind of... Uh, 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 Soft materials, don't they? Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff, bone, yeah. Including... Yeah, in not, not just bone, but also soft tissue mm. and um, various different proteins and, and things, things like that, collagen. So these things do actually survive for yeah. very, very long periods of time sometimes. It's, it's amazing stuff. Roger, we're going to have to stop there because we have a, a couple more interviews to do, but thanks so much for talking to us today. And it's great to hear that uh, in yeah. some small way our show uh, led to you doing this uh, work over there in the UK. So um, it was great chatting to you. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much. Dr. Roger Close is an ERC fellow at the University of Birmingham and the visiting fellow at Oxford University. So, and a, a long-time listener of the show. So um, that was cool. That's what we got in contact. We're going to take a break, folks, for some music, and we'll be back in a moment uh, talking about uh, the shape of the Milky Way galaxy, which um, I, we'll, we'll work out why this is so hard. But to me, it's kind of like describing your car on the outside when you're sitting inside it. It's kind of, you know, if you can't see it, it's kind of hard to do. We're in the middle of the galaxy. Yeah, that's the way it is. Anyway, uh, here's the music, and we'll be back in just a moment. Three, triple, ah. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein to Go Go on 3 Triple R. Um, we are about to talk to our next guest now. It's Professor Richard DeGrasse, who is from Macquarie University. He is an astronomer. Richard, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Thank you. Thanks so much for uh, for giving us the opportunity to talk to you. We we saw some of the new work that's uh, that you've put out, which is really fascinating. What what I wanted to get you to explain to people is this idea around this 
understanding what our own galaxy so the galaxy that our star sits in looks like and why it's so hard for us to under you know have a picture of of its shape because we seem to know so much about all the other galaxies yeah right well as you can imagine it's very difficult to figure out the shape of our milky way because we are sitting right inside of it um it is uh, as we said in our press release as if you're trying to figure out the shape of australia from your back garden Mm. Now, that's a, that's a hard undertaking, isn't it? Um, so what, what do we do? We, uh, we need to have what we call tracers, certain types of stars for which we can actually get distances very accurately. And if you have enough of them, you can, you can plot them in three dimensions um, in the direction in which they are seen and at the distance at which they are seen. And that will make up a three-dimensional structure of what our Milky Way galaxy looks like. So that's the basis of, uh, of, of the work done by my uh, uh, junior colleagues in China. Hmm. And in terms of the stars that you select, I mean, is there something special about them? Are they one type of star that you look for in various parts of the sky? Yeah, so we use what's called variable stars, and one particular type of variable star called Cepheids. Variable stars are stars that become brighter and fainter and then brighter again uh, periodically with very well-defined periods. And it turns out that these Cepheids variable stars have a very nice relationship between the period of that brightening and, and, and getting fainter again uh, and their actual brightness. And so what you can do is you can observe a star in the sky and, and work out what the average brightness is when you see it. You can compare that with the expected brightness based on that period. And the difference in brightness is a, is a direct measure of the distance to the star, provided you know how much dust there is between us and that particular star. Hmm. Um. Thanks, Richard. It's Dr. Lyndon here. Now, you mentioned that you're working with some Chinese colleagues. Is this a kind of project that requires large international collaborations? Do you need to have uh, satellites, telescopes looking all across the world to do this kind of work? Um, well, there are two aspects to your question. The first aspect is that the data that we used was based on satellite observations with a satellite called WISE. Uh, it's an infrared satellite run by NASA in the United States. Uh, in astronomy data becomes public about a year after the observations are done. So we use a public database to compile a very large catalog of 50,000 plus variable stars. This was done by junior scientists in China. And the reason that this was done by scientists in China is that I actually have a background myself in China. I spent eight and a half years as a professor at Peking University prior to my move to Macquarie University a year ago. So I'm still working very closely with my colleagues there. And the lead scientist on this particular project is actually a previous uh, PhD student of mine. Um, this is Dr. Ray. I was wondering, uh, the concept of a variable star for a second, it periodically gets brighter and darker. Um, there's kind of a, the, the why there, I had so many things, naive things flying through my head. Is it getting brighter and darker because it's getting closer and farther or something's getting in front of it or is it something, a uh, planet orbiting it? So what, what gives the periodicity to variable stars in the first place? Uh, that's a very good question, and there are a number of uh, answers to that particular question. For setting these variables, what's happening is that they expand and contract. So it's like a pulsation of the outer layers of the star. And that has to do with uh, radiation, hot radiation coming from the inner core of the star that uh, kicks off some of the outer electrons of the helium layer, of the helium atoms in the outer parts of the, of, uh, of the star. And so depending on how many electrons a particular helium uh, uh, atom has, it, uh, it absorbs light or it actually allows light to, to pass through. And that, uh, so that causes the expansion and contraction of the star. So it's, it's quite a complicated process, but in essence what we're looking at are stellar pulsations. 
Mm. Richard, so, uh, I mean, pre and post this work, what do we actually know about the shape of our galaxy? I mean, I, I remember as a child always being told it was a spiral galaxy, and then I, I think a few years ago I, I read that it was a barred spiral, which is a slightly different type of spiral, which has a little bar across the centre. I mean, mm. how, much, how much do we know now, and, and what has your work sort of added to that knowledge of the shape? Yeah, well, good question. We, uh, we, we, we know more and more about the shape of our galaxy, but as I said, it's very difficult given our position inside of the Milky Way. Um, yes, it is a spiral galaxy, pretty much like the Andromeda galaxy that we can see um, with uh, binoculars fairly easily from, uh, you know, from our back gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does have a central uh, elongated structure, which we call a bar, and you can work that out by looking at how many stars there are in a given direction close to the center of the Milky Way compared to the other side of the center, and that's pretty well known as well. Um, well and if you then look at our Milky Way galaxy from a great distance you, uh, on edge, you would see it as a very flat, uh, a flat pancake. Yep. Uh, that was very well known uh, in terms of the distribution of the gas, and by gas uh, I mean the distribution of hydrogen atoms, which is the most uh, common element in the universe. Um, the stars don't reach as far out from the center of the Milky Way, so we had not seen that uh, uh, deviation from from a flat pancake uh, so well uh, in stars. It had been seen in, in these hydrogen atoms. And so what our work did, we did two things. First of all, stars we looked at are very young stars. They, are, uh, they have masses between about 4 and 20 times the mass of our sun, which means by definition that they are much younger, and they were probably born in the locations where we found them. And these stars, these, these young Cepheid stars, uh, show a characteristic warped structure. So that means if you look at, uh, at the Milky Way galaxy from the side, you see an S-shaped distribution rather than a flat plane. Now, that was a, that was a novel uh, result. Uh, but more interestingly, perhaps, is we saw that this warped structure is not straight, but it, it uh, almost follows like a spiral structure in the far outer regions. And we think what we see there is um, that the inner disk of our Milky Way galaxy, all the stars in the, in the, in the inner Milky Way, are rotating around at a regular uh, speed, about 250, 300 million years uh, once, once around the galactic center. And the inner disk is dragging along with it the outer disk, but it's, it's la- the outer disk rotation is lagging behind. And that's how you get this uh, spiral-like structure. We call, we call that precession. Mm. Um, one of the things that I'm always curious about is, you know, as we're, the last couple of decades we've started learning more and more about these things, we've gone from a scenario where we thought our solar system, so not the galaxy, but our solar system was fairly unique, to now, you know, we have this knowledge of almost, you know, the majority of stars having planetary systems of some type around them, and, and that uniqueness has sort of faded away. What, what's the scenario with regards to our galaxy? Is, is it a, a similar situation where we're discovering that our galaxy is very similar to many of the other ones around, or is there something spe- special about the Milky Way? Well, the Milky Way is one of many billions, if not hundreds of billions of galaxies out there in the universe. It's a, it's a large spiral galaxy mm-hmm. uh, of a type that you see around us. The Andromeda galaxy, the nearest large galaxy to the Milky Way, is pretty similar in terms of yep. its mass and its stellar distribution. There are some differences and all that. But, uh, yeah, a Milky Way galaxy is, is uh, pretty run-of-the-mill for a large spiral galaxy. It's not that special. Mm. Now, just one final question for you. In terms of the actual um, observations that you're doing, will will things change when the new James Webb telescope goes up? Will that give you more information, or is it um, is the sort of information you get from the Wise uh, satellite sort of optimised for this sort of work? Um, well, Wise uh, is good because it was based on infrared observations, mm-hmm. which allow you to look through the dust in the in the plane of our Milky Way, and James Webb will 
be able to do the same thing. Yeah. But rather than James Webb, I would say the most important data that we'll get in the future is from the Gaia satellite, the European satellite that's mapping about the positions and uh, motions of about a billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. Mm. And uh, that's going to be a, a lot more than what we did. But hopefully our result will serve as a benchmark against which the Gaia satellite's, uh, satellite's results can be measured. Fantastic. Richard, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the ongoing work and hopefully we will be updating our children's books on what the um, what the Milky Way looks like as a result. Thank you and thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Professor Richard DeGrasse is from Macquarie University as an astronomer and doing some very interesting work there. It's, it's amazing that we, we're still trying to answer this question of what the shape of our galaxy looks like and we're inside it. Yeah, but, uh, Dr yeah. Ray and I were trying to we're doing, doing little just dances to with our hands to try to understand what it and, looks and like. like. Does that mean that the ones on the end are getting thrown out slowly? I know. Yeah. Thought, you were, thought you were waving at me for a second, but then yeah. I, I realised what you were trying to do. Interpretive uh, science dance. <laughs> yeah, there was something going on. Folks, we're going to take a break for uh, some music and important station announcements, and we'll be back in a moment with a guest that we actually have in the studio, which is a rare thing for today, but uh, still, always good. Three. Triple. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go on 3 Triple R. And in the studio with us now as a PhD student, Gemma Moyamaya is a student in Population Health and Immunity Infection and Immunity Divisions of the Walter and Liza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Gemma, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Dr. Shane. It's great to be here. Dr. Lyndon, Dr. Ray. I can see them all, as you can. Un you obviously can't see me that I can see them all, but live here in the studio. Yeah, I'm amazed that you actually remembered all their names, even though I don't remember their names most of the even time. Even we don't remember them. Yeah, that's why there's all that pointing there. You. <laughs> it's great. Now, you're, you're working in an area that, I, I, when I was reading the stuff you sent through, this must affect a lot of people because it deals with the issues around the amount of iron in the blood. How many people, you know, in Australia or around the world or whatever are actually affected by this illness because it's kind of you know if it's too high it's a problem if it's too low it's a problem mm, mm. I, I can imagine this affects a lot of people yeah so I guess um, the numbers are actually pretty difficult to quantify in mm. terms of obviously it's also a spectrum as yep. you mentioned so I'm, I'm working on iron and it's a very tightly controlled um, metal in the body because too much of it is very unhealthy as is too little of it mm. but a figure for example would be that more than 40,000 children each year, year are born with um, beta thalassemia right. and that can result in very high levels of iron in the body and about 7% of them die as a result of um, iron overload which, which is essentially a term for when um, iron can get accumulated in your organs, it can cause uh. organ failure of the liver, the pancreas. It can also result in diabetes as a result uh, of right. being in, um, accumulating in, in the pancreas. Um, heart failure. Um, so it's not good. Patriarchy issues. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, let me just get my head around this because... We don't produce iron in the body, so we we eat iron, you know, in meats mm -hmm, and vegetables, mm -hmm. other things. Mm. And how do we expel iron? Like so what, what normally? I mean, I understand in in women's menstrual cycles they will mm -hmm. expel a certain amount of iron because mm. the iron's in the blood. But mm -hmm. how how else do we expel iron? Well, that actually is the critical point um, in the pathology of iron overload because um, humans have evolved 
mostly when there wasn't a hell of a lot of heme iron available. So our bodies have not evolved a way to actively excrete iron. Um, Most of the iron is actually recycled internally and we have no way to get rid of it if we've got too much. Mm -hmm. The only way we lose any iron is through bleeds the menstrual cycle or when so we absorb iron from our food and it's then stored in the some it's stored in various places but one of the places is in the cells that line the duodenum which is part of your intestines and those cells just slough off and are excreted um a couple a couple of every two or three days you lose right. those cells and uh, lot, so that no lot, yeah. no that that's really only a very very small percentage of the total iron in your body yeah. that you yeah. lose in that way well, I, I have a friend and i don't know if it's the he has the the condition you described but he has to give blood a couple times Mm-hmm. like regularly every other month or something mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. reduce the amount of iron in his body. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so that, that is one of the ways um, that we can treat iron overload is to donate blood and reduce the hematocrit because, um, so basically an, an adult will have um, about uh, 20 to 25 milligrams of iron in their, in their plasma and only one to two milligrams of that will be lost um, through what, as I described with the, the, the cells from your intestines sloughing off. So yeah, most of it is contained in, in the blood and getting rid of the blood is quite an effective way to. (laughs) (laughs) causes other problems too. It does indeed. Yes. So I just want to follow up on when it swings the other way, as you said, our, our bodies are really good at pulling iron out of our food. So then what goes wrong when you're not good at pulling iron out of your food? That's anemia, mm. right? Yes, yeah. So anemia can be um, too few red blood cells, which is mostly because um, if you have mutations in the genes that um, make the proteins that form the red blood cell or the hemoglobin itself, then you can have issues in either... In sickle cell disorders, the shape of the red blood cell means mm. means that it can cause um, it can get stuck around some of the bends in mm. in the circulation. Thalassemia is when there's um, an imbalance. You have two beta globin chains that form the hemoglobin and two alpha globin chains that form the hemoglobin. And a thalassemia is when you have an imbalance. In those chains which can result in ineffective red blood cells so you can have too few red blood cells you can have misshapen red blood cells you can have red blood cells that are less efficient at carrying um, oxygen all of those things can give rise to what we broadly call anemia and some of it can be through not having sufficient iron Hmm. so from all this spectrum of how iron can misbehave in the body too much of it not enough of it which particularly interesting component are you studying um thanks dr leonard so um basically one of the hormones that was recently discovered only four years ago um oh gosh we're in 2019 now five years wait we we still don't know all the hormones in the body we're still finding them out crazy right (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah. I and that's why I love science. I expect I'll be 
still doing this forever because there is so much cool stuff to find out anyhow back to back to iron overload the hormone that we discovered five years ago um is involved in the regulation of that iron so as i mentioned it's very tightly controlled and the hormone that i'm studying is called erythroferone but we who's responsible for that name i'd mm. like to know yeah it's, <laughs> i know we colloquially part of it's latin right the pharaoh Ferris mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for iron. Yeah, Dr. Ray's yeah, yeah. all over that one. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Good yeah. thing you got in the studio, yeah. huh? Um, so. Why didn't they just call it iron juice? <laughs> well, something simple <laughs> we could all remember. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, <laughs> exactly. we call yeah, it Earthy. Oh, do you? Earthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cute. Yeah, that's pretty cute. Earthy. Yeah. Earthy actually regulates the iron regulator, which is another hormone called hepcidin. Oh, so it regulates the regulator? Exactly. Yeah. Jeez, that's that's so, getting complicated. Yes. Yeah. So. At the moment, there's a lot of studies looking at how we can um, perhaps make um, hepcidin agonists or uh, other molecules that mimic hepcidin, which is this hormone that regulates iron. And those are doing pretty well, but um, we'd also like to start looking at earthy and how it regulates hepcidin and even how the body regulates earthy because if we could control this hormone we would be able to better control um iron in the body and hopefully we'd be able to apply that as a therapy to these people who are experiencing the 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 I was going to say morbidities, but I'm trying to explain that a bit better. So who might experience the pathology? That's hardly any better. Over to you, Dr. Linton. <laughs> it sounds like a babushka doll, though, you know, the regulator. Mm. And the regulator. You know, if you, keep, you keep, just keep going and, and something's got to control something somewhere. Well, my question was maybe a naive one. How does one control a hormone? Ah, not, it depends on the hormone. Oh, okay. If it's the regulator or the super regulator or the Warren G regulator. Yeah. yeah. Um, Typically, a lot of this occurs in a, in a lock and key kind of way. If you imagine that a hormone is just a, a protein or what they call a peptide, which is essentially a protein before it's formed a, an, a tertiary structure. So it's just a string of amino acids at that point. So either the protein or the peptide can find a... If they act as the key, they find a lock that has generally co-evolved with them on another cell. And that's typically how um, a hormone will be circulated around the body and then uh, dock into its lock and a signal will be... um, Hmm transduced or communicated from there on when it comes to juiced that's pretty good (laughs) when it comes to earthy we don't yet understand that there's a little bit of information um and i want to ask you about earthy like how do you like in terms of the actual mechanics of discovering uh, a new material like that. I mean, mm, mm. how do you go about it? I mean, I, I always have this image that you guys are just grinding stuff in in, in big um, vats and then sort of, you know, I, I can never work out. I mean, out it's how barely more refined than that, yeah, to but, be fair. How do you, I mean, if you don't know, I mean, this is an interesting question though, because if you don't know that there's another one there, mm. how do you go about looking for it and finding it? I mean, how, mm, did, how, mm. did, how did they find that one? What was the sort I of process? So, to address the the question about of how um we were kind of you start to notice that there are little 
little black holes in in your picture of what's going on. You notice mm. that sometimes something happens and you can't quite explain it with what you know of so far. That makes sense, obviously. Mm-hmm. So what they did was they they took um, they took some mice and they bled the mice. And usually, in response to bleeding, your blood your body will quickly make more red blood cells that's for obvious reasons evolutionarily you don't want to be stuck without your full brain function or bodily function so your body has evolved a way to very quickly make more red blood cells and we noticed that and i say we uh, people who'd been working very hard on this long before i had um, it was noticed that there was something going on here that we didn't quite understand it was to do with hepcidin but hepcidin was controlled by something else right so what they did was they bled these mice and then they looked at all of the um mrna and they compared the mrna before the bleed and after the bleed and between mice that had and hadn't been bled. And then they looked to see what was different. And there was a couple of different genes that were incredibly highly um, increased in the number of copies of the mRNA that were made. And one of them was erythropherone. Yeah. I I find it fascinating that the body knows... You know, like if you cut yourself somewhere, you start bleeding, it knows to suddenly switch into high gear the production of red blood cells. I mean, that seems because they're made in a different part of the body to where the injury occurs. Mm, mm. And so there's there's a chemical connection there that's going on very rapidly mm-hmm. from various parts of the body. And I, and I know our circulatory system helps with those messages, but it, it just seems it, it's fascinating to me that it knows how to do that so quickly. Mm, yeah, it is. It's, mm. it's incredible. So, so then to study that, if you think, hey, this gene is expressing a lot of copies of mRNA, can you, do you use techniques like CRISPR to turn that gene off and see if... Yeah, so, yeah. so actually, um, in terms of finding ERFI, that wasn't, that wasn't done with, with CRISPR, but I'm using CRISPR um, in my work in order to... I've basically cut open a little hole in the DNA in some, we call them erythroid precursors. They're basically the stem cells, which will later become red blood cells. Yeah, yeah so I've, I've used CRISPR to make a little cut just um, where Earthy is, and I've pasted in a piece of DNA, which codes for a fluorescent protein. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so we've been able to now, um, or hopefully down the track, we're still validating these, but we'll be able to look at Earthy, track where it goes in the cell, look at how the, um, the amount of mRNA that's made from the DNA of Earthy increases in response to various signals and hopefully try and knuckle down exactly what is uh, regulating this hormone. Mm, nothing like a fluorescent tag to get a bio person all excited, I say. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, well, it's it's such a it's such a incredible tool, though, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the most CRISPR amazing things phenomenal. of the. You add CRISPR, and then you add the ability to put fluorescent tags wherever you want mm. them, and all of a sudden, things that you couldn't find before, the uh, totally visible optically. Yeah, you know? I yeah. mean. CRISPR in itself, we used to have to insert fluorescent tags into the genome um, with a process called 
homologous recombination. Anyway, mm. CRISPR has vastly advanced the ability of research to answer questions that before would have taken us just a much much longer time. It's really helped um, the amount of the amount of uh, questions that we can address now. Uh, yeah. yeah, boundless. Sounds great. Now, uh, finally, how long have you got to go in your PhD, Gemma? So I'm in. What a rude question, <laughs> Dr. Shane. Well, Possibly I've... forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, luckily, luckily, um, luckily, I've just started my second year, so I'm in. I'm in the happy place. Yeah, <laughs> planning on submitting next month. Yeah, good. <laughs> I'm in the happy place where I've still got enough time to generate data that I'm not panicking yet. Yep. But uh, yeah, hopefully, wrap up in the next by the end of um, my fourth year. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today at Triple R, and uh, good luck with the work, and uh, enjoy CRISPR. Everyone does. Such a good tool. <laughs> thanks for having me. Gemma Moyer-Mayer is uh, in the Population Health, Immunity and Infection and Immunity Divisions of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute and doing her PhD. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and we'll be back with the part we normally start the show with, which is our news section, and Ray and Dr. Lynn have got something special. Three, triple ah. uh, welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Just I jumped the gun there. Uh, you are listening to Einstein the Gogo. We've got some news for you, Dr. Linden. Let's start with you. I'm going to start with me. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Well, I was going to bring in a bunch of terrifying statistics about how it's been the hottest summer on record, not by 0.1 of a degree, but by almost a degree, which mm. is insane but i'm sure that's there's a lot of media going on about that so i thought instead i was really interested in this story that i saw about a pair of semi-identical twins that were semi-identical semi-identical you're not quite identical so you're not identical so what we've got it's like half a hole we've got (laughs) identical twins which is one sperm one egg it's it splits in the womb and then you know so the twins are identical they have 100 percent the same genes and then you have non-identical twins two eggs one sperm in each egg non-identical babies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this situation it's only the second case that's ever been found the first one was in the u.s and this is actually the first case that's been identified in pregnancy they identified right. it in utero the mum came in at six weeks they scanned and said oh you've got twins that are in the same sack so they're identical twins and then mm-hmm. she came back a few weeks later and they said oh no hang on one's a girl and one's a boy Mm. that can't be right and they're semi-identical which is one egg two sperm oh yeah that's rare sorry it's so rare it's so rare because normally this does happen sometimes i always thought this was a joke in movies oh it's a boy and a girl and they're twins are you identical no you know, <laughs> sort of. But that's, sort of. But that's interesting because my understanding is when the first sperm penetrates the egg, there's a there's a chemical process that says that's it mm. and prevents further ones from doing so. So they must have simultaneously. Well, yeah, and also I think egg. this can happen sometimes where you get two sperm entering yeah. the egg, but then you get three chromosomes going on, and right. that's not normally that's not, viable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And but in this case, the chromosomes have sort of come in. You've got one from the mm. mother, two from the father, and they've all kind of blurred together. So you get all combinations mum dad one mum dad two dad one and dad two merging together um but the dad two one has sort of died off that's not really viable and then the cells have kind of multiplied multiplied and split and so these twins have i think it's 80 they're 89 percent identical wow that's amazing yeah and so these these researchers this was published um 
led by researchers from QUT, was published in a, quite a prestigious medical journal the mm-hmm. other day. Uh, they looked at all these previous cases of twins, couldn't find any others. And, yeah, yeah it's quite quite amazing. The children are four now. Yep. Has someone informed this family that they can just... These kids can just say, you will pay me for my blood for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> yeah. there'll be researchers all over the world who That's will pay true. them for yeah. for access to their genetic material and oh. so forth. Because if it's so rare, you know, it sounds like it's so rare that um, studying it would be fascinating. I'm just thinking of Dr. Cromo, the epigeneticist. Yeah, yeah. The twins, the, twins man. Yeah, he would. Oh. Jeff, you know, he probably Jeff have would kittens. go nuts over yeah. this, yeah. yeah. Maybe his ears have pricked up already. He's probably yeah, he, he, Jeff got listens, some information so. on Twitter for yep. us. He'd so. be down there on Deacon looking at it right now. Oh, there yep. you go. Yep. Well, just after he finishes listening to the show. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Ray, what uh, do you got? Dr. Shane, um, conversations actually take a reasonably amount of evolved actions in our brain and structures in our brains to work. In fact, the whole area is called something called um, uh, sensor, sensor, mo- sensor motor interactions. And we know that humans have it. It's this ability to change, talk, interact, process, and, and interrupt each other and continue to talk and and you have to connect what controls your voice and your brain together in in a particular way we know monkeys can do it um but we didn't quite know mice could do it that well and and so i want to share with you um there is a a central american mouse that's called the singing mouse because it sings and and i i believe if this works now it doesn't work all right i can hear it that that chirping that, that, yeah, that's yeah. that's a mouse singing cool uh and, i guess and it sounds better to them than us it, it does and <laughs> it, uh, apparently what it is is these mice actually sing and respond to each other and interrupt interrupt and interact and modulate their frequencies as if it sounds like a conversation mm. and while the world is in nature is full of audible discussions through animals the amount of animal models that exist to do this are much much smaller uh, and while you have monkeys and, and, and primates, other than that, we don't really have a great mount animal model to study this interaction where the brain has evolved enough, enough complexity to be able to, to, to have mm. this type of conversation. Because while there are animals make noises, uh, the idea of a conversation going back and forth in such a small mammal um, is, is unexpected. In fact, this is evidence that it evolved earlier than we thought. Interesting. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so and this is the Alston singing mouse, and research, researchers at NYU uh, really have mapped how that brain, those brain structures work to go from a, a motor sensor skill to connecting to vocal cords. And uh, they think it's going to be a, a new mouse model to study conversation in, in, in neuroscience and also that's trying to understand the evolution of social interactions. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. From a singing okay. mouse. Okay. Cuz when I saw this I thought why is this mouse on the cover of science? I mean it's interesting but how can it relate to the wider world? But I, yeah, yeah. I think I and, get and, it now. And so it's 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 reshaping a little bit of the evolutionary path, but it's also a way to study because there aren't small mammals that do this on on the right time scale. Marmosets will kind of talk back and forth, but it's like a minute, 5 minutes between different mm. Mm. Communication, so there's no interruption and modulation of what you are going to say based on the conversation. Yeah. And there's some other 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 movies and audio of the mice interrupting each other and and changing their songs. Yeah, I think it's the interrupting part that's that's really yeah. fascinating. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, do, do birds do that? Do birds? I mean, we know birds sing so much to each other and they interact so much vocally. Yeah. Do they interrupt each other? I, I'm not sure if they do, but I, I think birds are a difficult model, animal model in 
in in neuroscience it's i think it's harder yeah. to keep birds around and, well yeah yeah and uh, remember they 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 stimulate and study the brain and can genetically modify them so i think it's easier in mice than yeah than, than a bird. yeah well it once again just uh clears up the fact that we're not as unique as we thought we were and uh most of the stuff that we do you can find somewhere in the animal kingdom if you look yeah. hard enough our conversation's not unique. Our galaxy's not unique. Mm. Oh, <laughs> our weather's not... Oh, hang on. There. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> it is now. Oh, our weather's getting unique. Well, there's a lot of fires around the moment. So oh, it's, uh, I know. Not good. But, um, yeah, we're back. It feels like we're back in the standard summer mode, though, doesn't it? Where the, that period of five or six days above 35 degrees, which we yeah. didn't have a lot. You know, we were talking about this a few weeks back. We, we haven't yeah, had a lot of in Feb. fairly banal, but yeah. autumn well, started with a big bang. We're back well, with a bang. Melbourne. Melbourne, going to the country where they don't get the sea breeze, they had a lot more days, I thought, yeah, of, yeah, yeah, of higher yeah. temperature. In Victoria, hottest days, hottest nights, hottest mean temperature for summer on record wow. by a large margin. Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> everybody, have a great Sunday. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and GoGo. It is hot out there, so stay safe and keep those around you safe. We're going to hand you over to the team from Eat It. Thanks for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.